Welcome to the Queen's Innovation Runway podcast. This podcast series is about sharing the emerging success stories from Queen's University in Eastern Ontario from startups through small to medium-sized enterprises. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome everybody to this episode of Queen's Innovation Runway. We're pleased to have Dr. Bauman Kashi joining us on this particular episode. Bauman holds a PhD in economics and is the founder and president of Limestone Analytics. Prior to founding Limestone, he worked as a consultant in the areas of public investment management, economic analysis of development projects, and the evaluation of social programs. He's also served as an advisor on numerous projects for people like the World Bank, US, AID, and the Inter-American Development Bank. Limestone Analytics provides a range of analytical advisory services across the project and policy cycle to improve the value obtained from every dollar spent. Bauman, welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. What is the secret sauce or the problem that Limestone Analytics is solving? I should have a quick answer to that because uh, this is uh, this is how we should uh, sell the firm, I guess. The way we define Limestone's value is that we like to make economic analysis uh, more widely used and more relevant to uh, policy questions, investment decisions, etc. That's what drives our that's why we wake up in the morning, basically. Because we've had a chance to work work with your company and see your your evolution from near the beginning. There's often a gap in the kind of analysis that are done, and there's a certain threshold below which there really isn't much done in the way of impact and economic analysis of different projects, perhaps in Africa or other developing parts of the world. So is that the sweet spot that Limestone Analytics works on, where you've figured out how to complete meaningful economic and other types of analysis on these projects? It's interesting. Uh, as you were asking that question, I think I can think of three different ways to respond to that. So one is absolutely what you said. I mean, if we are trying to expand the use of use and relevance of economic analysis, one way is to make it more accessible. Before starting Limestone, I used to wonder why economic analysis that I used to do was only limited to projects that had a budget of a few hundred millions and above. It was an expensive type of analysis to do, but a lot of other projects, a smaller policy decisions or institutions of a smaller scale, like even cities and municipalities, they make very similar decisions, except the scope is a smaller, the scale is a smaller. So oftentimes a lot of those go without uh, looking as deep into the numbers and I thought, well, if we make these analysis a little more accessible, it might uh, be, we, there will be more use of it. And because a lot of investments are now, a lot of investment decisions and policies are becoming more and more decentralized, there is a greater case for making economic tools also more accessible for these decentralized institutions. However, as we started working in this space, we learned that there are two other aspects when it comes to making economics more relevant. One is that as we try to think through how to make this more accessible, we had to come up with innovative approaches that would, because oftentimes when you try to make something a little more approachable, you, you end up simplifying it, or you end up creating mechanisms to ensure that making it more accessible is not going to take the rigor out of it. 
And in doing that, we came up with some innovation that that were very marketable. So even the the same old decisions that used to use economic analysis, they found a lot of they found a lot of interest in the in the methods that we had developed. So not only we ended up working in the market that we intended to, which was the market of a smaller decision makers, but we also found ourselves back in the game with the bigger players in the market who have been using economic analysis and they were very happy to see new ways of looking at things. And then the third aspect to making economics more relevant was by not assuming that economic analysis, the way it has been done for the past so many decades, is going to remain the same. As our understanding of the world changes and our values change, from every aspect, from the attention we have to ecosystem service values, the attention we have to uh, different subgroups in the society based on gender, based on ethnicity, uh, inclusion is a big driver of our decisions nowadays. And for economics to maintain its relevance, it needs to it needs to find a way to speak to these different dimensions too. So these are the three ways that I would say we've been able to do what we started to do. Um, so I'd encourage our listeners to actually go to Limestone Analytics website. We'll put the uh, link in the show notes. But I, I looked at your website, and you actually have a map with some digital red pins in it that looks at the projects you've done all over the world. From based in Kingston, Ontario, I see red pins uh, many places in the world, Latin America, Africa, in Asia, and many other parts of the world. Could you pick one of those projects and tell us, give us an overview on, on what those projects look like. So let's pick one that's international. And then I've also would like to get into some of the work you've been doing uh, with the city of Kingston more locally related to COVID. So if you can give us an example of two projects, I think that'd be useful for our listeners. All right. Uh, most recently, we've been doing a lot of work in Malawi. Uh, let's consider that. We joined hands uh, with Copenhagen Consensus Center, which is uh, a a think tank that uh, gets funding from various governments, including the government of Canada. And what they do is they take a developing country and they go and say, okay, let's, let's look at a bunch of different projects, hundreds of projects and say, what is the bang for the buck for this economy coming out of each of these projects? And these projects could be anything from expanding education to healthcare to to building roads, hospitals, or even uh, digitizing the government or improving the financial sector. It could be a very wide range of uh, projects. We like what they do. We really believe in their mission because we believe it doing the economic analysis on all these projects will help all the will help the national government and the donor community with a menu of things that you can do in this country if you're looking at helping this country. And this is how they rank against each other. So in Malawi, we've evaluated more than 15 investments so far. And because the timing of it was also with COVID, we also used um, some modeling that we developed uh, to, to measure the employment and GDP outcomes uh, of COVID uh, lockdown policies in Canada. We took the same model and, and used it in the context of Malawi too. So we did a range of in, like analysis in Malawi plus uh, a forecasting exercise for how COVID will shape their economy in, on, over the next five years. 
Um, so that's kind of, uh, we have probably more than six people working uh, on, on investments in Malawi concurrently, which has been a significant part of our portfolio. And how do your partners use the information? Do they use it to ensure investments actually happen? Do they use it to prioritize how to take some finite funds and, and have the most use for them? What, what is the outcome that you're your, the recipients of your reports are looking to do with the, the information? So with this particular project where we are doing this analysis in the sense of, like we use the word ex ante, which means we are doing this analysis before the project has happened. This is more uh, a precursor to, to approval, to justification and advocacy. Uh, we did the entire analysis hand in hand with the government. So we had uh, we had the National Planning Commission on board. They had assigned their own staff to, as a member of our team. So every project that we were working on, we had a local expert. We have informed the the documents that the reports that National Planning Commission of Malawi puts together, which includes their plans over the next five years, which sectors they want to invest in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it also helps uh, bring the attention of a lot of donors who play, who play a big role in some of these countries um, to, in, towards, towards the sectors that they need to focus on. Um, some sectors become very fashionable at times, but when you do the numbers, sometimes you discover that, oh, this is a ne- neglected type of investment that can come with great benefits for the, co- for the country. And it shouldn't be... Um, neglected. Uh, Malawi in particular is a complex place because uh, most of the export is, majority of export is tobacco. And tobacco is not necessarily a commodity that a lot of donors are interested in looking into, but there is a lot to learn about the capacities in the agriculture sector there by just looking at the tobacco market and maybe replicate it for maize or other things. And some of what we did was helpful to bring attention to that, uh, to that aspect, uh, the results of our work has been presented now in, by different in, in different ways, but very much by the government uh, itself. That's wonderful. So going back to your your secret sauce, where you've figured out how to take economic impact and other analyses down to projects that typically wouldn't have those analysis done, you've identified. I'm probably going to oversimplify Bauman, but granularity or other optionality or other uh, variables that you're saying now could even scale back up to any uh, project to look at it in new ways, which I think is quite interesting. So if I got that right, maybe I'll let you jump in there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the I would say that economic analysis would have happened on many of these projects anyway, but no one would have done, if it wasn't affordable, if we weren't able to go in and do economic analysis on 15, 20 projects that are not approved already, uh, these projects are not approved already. That means there's very little budget that can that they can justify sending towards any type of analysis for them. But doing that analysis creates this possibility to put them on a menu and rank them. And that's that's a very valuable asset to have. So otherwise, a lot of decision would have been done without such analysis. So let me step back to the to the beginning of limestone analytics. So as an entrepreneur, what was your motivation for thinking about starting a company like Limestone Analytics? So I used to work in this space and um, I saw problems uh, with the way we used to work um, in terms of um, how we draw lines and said, 
we wouldn't use economic analysis for this type of a decision or this type of project because of the size or the money or or because the tools are not capable of absorbing some type of impact, etc. I saw all these limitations and I had ideas around, well, we can go beyond this. We can do better. And I knew a lot of organizations are interested in this. Uh, this got actually, a lot of this motivation came from this concept of innovative financing models, which are very fashionable these days. And a lot of organizations are thinking about it. So a lot of organizations that are driven by passion and they, they, they want to do good, they suddenly realize there is this area called innovative financing. And if they can put the right numbers together, they could actually scale up their interventions and do more of them. But they're not in the business of doing those types of analysis and put all the numbers together. So they were coming to economists, they were coming to me asking if we can do this type of analysis on their smaller interventions. And normally we would say no, because that's too small or no, because you can't afford me. And that was kind of, that bothered me. And I started thinking, what if we could change this? What if we could actually make it more accessible? It has started there, but then the use of what we developed, uh, the methods we developed, the approaches that we developed have now expanded to go back and, and affect all the usual sus- suspects in the space of uh, economic analysis. Sticking with the, the smaller size projects where you said the, the analysis weren't really feasible and funding wasn't available... I'm assuming you could probably get some satisfaction as as a contribution to society if there were a number of projects that used your services that potentially got the momentum they needed to secure funding and projects go ahead that otherwise might have just stayed on the shelf or been in limbo for a long time. Is that is that a fair way to look at some of the outcomes? Correct, but I'm going to add a twist there. We would just we would take as much pride in in our impact if we also help manage to stop a bad project. So our analysis, our, many, many organizations might come to us in order to help get funding behind a project by showing how beneficial it can be. But sometimes our analysis shows that a project is not actually as good as you think. And that's normally not good news because people who are involved with the project are vested in it and they, they believe in it. And sometimes it's difficult to see. And some of our clients hate us for that. Some of them love us for that because we say, now we feel like we, 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 we've been underwater for all this time. We didn't know what's happening. Now you helped us see the big picture. So we prefer those clients who, who, who like the learning aspect. But yeah, there are two sides to it. The analysis can help justify an investment or block an investment uh, by highlighting that this is not maybe the best use of money. So then maybe those projects can pivot or move to the next thing down the line that will have a, a better risk benefit or return on investment. I want to make sure we get back to talking about the local example. But before I do that, I wanted to ask about your team. You've got very capable team members working with you. And you've got, I would say, very strong workflow and processes to do all these things. Talk about the size of your team and how the team has evolved from day one sort of through to today. Yeah, so it just started as me and uh, and three uh, three people who took a course I taught at Queen's. We started, I think you remember, uh, when we started at uh, Queen's Innovation Park. From there, I always believe that if we want to scale up, I need to... I. I can't remain the top of the organization from a technical or managerial standpoint. So I constantly 
try to find people who can come in and expand uh, the organizations at both levels. It's very difficult at the beginning because when you're a startup, you don't have much behind you financially or reputation-wise to do that. So I was uh, lucky enough to have uh, to have another colleague at Queens, uh, Chris Cotton, who who trusted and uh, decided to jump in and and join me on the on the trip on this journey. Um, and uh, together we expand the bandwidth in terms of services that we can perform and the projects that we can manage. And uh, slowly uh, we we try to expand in size. Being in Kingston, we had the luxury of accessing extremely good talent coming out of Queen's University. We we also received help from the partnership unit at Queen's uh, in different in many different ways. And we also, I think another important instrument was also my tax arrangement, uh, where the federal government's program, which allows us to bring in graduate students as interns in the company. And we've ended up hiring a number of those. Uh, and I think each year we bring in at least uh, five to six my tax interns into the company from economics department, policy school, uh, geography uh, department. We've uh, also now... Let's start hiring. COVID has enabled us to actually hire even more people away from Kingston too, or even people who we who did their internship here and then moved away. Maybe I'm uh, diverging from the main question, but as we grew, one of the key struggles have been just learning how to how to sustain our attention to quality and uh, and the culture within the company. As, as we grow, because uh, it's one thing to have one person to, who's involved with every project. It's another thing to have two people who are involved with every project. And now we are at a point where I don't know about some of the projects that are happening at the company. So we had to like replace a lot of things with systems that would ensure that. Uh, learn about what is HR, what is uh, all these different little things that comp- as the company grows need to become systems rather than people. That has been a great learning process. And and we also do a lot of government contracting, which brings another layer of complexity because we have to be extremely transparent, auditable uh, for government contracting in two countries, uh, US and Canada. So that's that's been a journey. It's an ongoing struggle that keeps me up at night. Uh, how If we hire one more person, how do we ensure that person gets the right training, gets the right exposure, etc.? That's a sign of a good leader to be uh, worrying about getting the resources to ensure your team continues to carry on the mission and implements your secret sauce, if I could call it that, in a way that keeps the quality going and, and allows you to take on more projects. So how many, how many team members work at Limestone Athletics at the moment? Um, so because we bring in um, a lot of experts under short-term contracts, it's a little difficult. But I think uh, when I looked at the people who are sort of card holders and like email address holders, I think we are about 20. But then we always have about five, six contractors who come in. Most organizations that compete in the same sector as we are, they have a big pool of contractors but because we change the way things are done and we are very proud of our approaches, we have to train people. So we can't rely a lot on contractors. We have to really go through a lot of training. And therefore, we have a large pool of employees now compared to other other businesses of the same size in our sector. Let's turn back to a, a local example. 
Can you tell us about some of your work that might be going on municipally or, or at the provincial level? Can the, at, at the municipal level, we've worked with the City of Kingston and Utilities Kingston uh, on a number of initiatives. The one that was probably the most interesting so far was a study of uh, the broadband gap. And uh, this was done in 2018 and 2019. So we looked at that there is in Canada, given the population density, um, reaching, uh, providing broadband services, internet services to remote locations is very costly. And therefore, there's a big gap when you look at the urban setting, the type of internet connection that they have compared to what people get in rural areas and the price they pay for it. It's it, it's significant. So we tried to come up with with a with with a model uh, and with a survey that would help us actually figure out whether or not there is enough willingness to pay and there is enough value by rural dwellers to actually uh, to pay for the cost of to justify the investment needed to expand this. This was a very interesting study because we we couldn't you know two years ago everyone was talking about the value of internet, access to internet for education, health services, but it was all very sci-fi two years ago. Like today, if I tell you that I'm going to, I have a medical appointment online, it's quite normal because we've been through COVID, but two years ago, it was impossible. So uh, we talked about that, but we stayed away from putting a value on those benefits. So we very rigorously measured the perceived, the currently perceived value, even if it's just going on Netflix, for instance. And even with that type of valuation, we managed to show that there is a case for government intervention for expanding broadband connectivity. Now, if we do the same study now, it's going to, the results are going to be extremely different. It's going to, there will be a much stronger push for it because education is in the picture now. A lot more than education, just uh, thinking about the number of people who can work remotely. Back then when we did this study, people didn't know more than a Skype. Now everyone is an expert on all different teleconferencing platforms. Anyway, I'll stop there. But that's that's one of the one of the work we've done with the city, which has resulted in a continued engagement with the city. We are looking at other projects with them now. At the provincial level, uh, our work has very much been focused on helping the province and Eastern Ontario as a region estimate and forecast the impacts of COVID uh, lockdown policies. Um, we've done that for Alberta as well and uh, across the country. And we've done that internationally too, but that has been our flagship type of contract, helping the decision makers see what's going to happen to employment and GDP under alternative scenarios uh, for lockdown. Uh, we've also teamed up with other players who do the epidemiological side of it because we do the economic analysis of it. So we just take the lockdown as a given and say, this is the economic impact of it. But then in order to fully inform a policymaker, they need to also consider the health outcomes. So that way we've managed to complete a package, even, even if we don't have the epidemiological capacity in-house. I could imagine a lot of governments and policymakers are in uncharted waters when it comes to this pandemic. And so is it that your analysis can help them look at the levers they can push or pull and have some idea of where to start and where to prioritize to, I guess, either maximize the rebound or ensure we keep the good parts of a pandemic and uh, recover as quickly as we can for the areas that we're no longer... Because I, I imagine 
you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine just politicians and policymakers, you know, how would they prioritize where to start and where to focus, et cetera? Absolutely. There are a lot of difficult decisions to make with COVID. It's totally uncharted territory. And uh, it, like when we started thinking about it, the main driver was that there are no economic models to tell you what will happen if you suddenly tell people they can't leave their houses. There hasn't been a case like this before. Like there has been a case like this before, but economics was not that 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 much in the picture at that point. So we realized we need a new thing. We need we need a new way of thinking. We need new tools, and that what drove uh, that that what gathered our interest. And we we went in the direction of actually figuring that out. Yeah, the the forecast that we put together helps a lot with a, a range of decisions. One is that some decisions are top down. Some decisions are local. So uh, without localized knowledge of impacts, uh, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen or advocate in one direction or the other when you have a say for decisions that are above uh, the level of a region. And then for the decisions that are at the level of a region, it's important to know what are those unique uh, what are the numbers for that specific region and how they're going to evolve given everything that is happening within and around that region. And this this is very context specific. Like even if you think about Kingston, you, you look at the industrial composition of Kingston, it's a very unique industrial setup. You have the university, you have the schools, you have the uh, medical services, and you have the army. And you have a lot of retirement houses. Uh, and the population context is very unique. The, the, you have... You have a lot of travel with the students that are coming to Kingston just for studies. And all of these unique elements play into how a lockdown policy is going to impact the economy and the health outcomes for the city of Kingston. You go to the next town, it's going it's to be unique again. So having that regionalized knowledge is very important for proper decision making. And our study was also helpful in, in identifying what are the impacts by subgroups, how are women affected, how are youth affected middle-aged people affected like all of these like looking at how they got the first hit in terms of employment and income and how how they've been able to recover through the lockdown to through the different lockdown policies and that way the decision makers can better target their programs and incentive or subsidies to the population in the greatest need fascinating and so going back to your secret sauce as i've termed it are you finding now that your work to figure out how to do these economic analysis with the granularity and speed and quality has just turned out to be nice and fortuitous, so to speak, that uh, you've been able to plug in to do these pandemic-related analysis to to inform policymakers? Or how much did you have to evolve your platform to do uh, do the COVID-related work? I would say that this COVID was an entirely new area of work for us from a technical standpoint. And I wouldn't say it was our secret sauce necessarily that allowed us to do this. A big part of it, we have a lot of interest in innovation to begin with. And I think as a small firm, we have that ability to be flexible and react to market. But uh, a point, a key point was our ability to, our level of engagement with academic resources in Kingston. For the purposes of this particular modeling, we had... um, former head of the uh, economics department at Queens actually working with us very closely and he he's the brain behind 
the model we developed around this. And we use also MyTax interns, again, graduate students from Queens uh, who were involved with that with that work. So it was very much a joint project in, in some ways. And uh, being having that close connection and interaction with an academic institution like Queens uh, was instrumental in our ability to move in that direction. As my last question, Bauman, what, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about Limestone Analytics? Should we just put your website in our show notes? Is that the best place to go to learn more about Limestone? Or would you recommend other, other places on the web? Well, we have the website for sure, but our, I can tell you that probably, probably half of our portfolio is not on the website yet because it's we, we've been growing a little faster than we can keep up updating. We, our LinkedIn page is relatively up to date, so we have uh, we have a social media manager that is working hard to keep that up to date. So following us on on LinkedIn would be also a useful uh, way of looking at what's happening. Perfect. We'll put uh, your website and your LinkedIn link uh, in the show notes. So, Bauman, your company is is inspiring for, for so many reasons, and you've done such a wonderful job as a leader. And Eastern Ontario is really privileged to, to have you commit to growing and building Limestone Analytics in Kingston. So we wish you uh, all the best, and maybe in, in sometime in the future, we can check in again and, and see what, uh, what good progress you've made. So thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks so much, Jim. I should acknowledge that uh, Eastern Ontario and Kingston is the right breeding ground for any type of uh, business of this nature. So we've benefited immensely. I don't think that we've, we could have pulled it off uh, in Toronto or Washington, to be honest with you. Uh, the the call and the university access and all of those are are essential for, for building a company of this nature. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen's Innovation Runway. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe or drop us a comment. If you want to learn more about supporting research and innovation at Queen's in Eastern Ontario, please see our show notes for the list of organizations at Queen's that help startups 